This podcast is brought to you by Learn Prime. Start your journey to becoming a great developer at learn.thoughtbot.com. Giant robots smashing into other giant robots. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast. It is Tuesday, September 17th. My name is Ben Orenstein, and I'm here today with Hillary Mason. Hi, Hillary. Hi, how are you? I'm well, thanks. So why don't we just start by having you describe yourself a little bit? Like, what, who are you and what do you do? All right. I'm Hillary Mason. I'm a data scientist, hacker, um, and I like to build products and systems that make data useful for actual human beings. And, and it, it seems like you, you make a, a distinction of what a data scientist is. And you said a data scientist versus like a statistician, for example. And your focus, your, your focus was on um, the communication aspect, it seemed like. Well, that's one of the three areas. I mean, I, I really think data science as a practice breaks down into three different components. The mm-hmm. first one is the, the math and stats, but it's not generally particularly advanced mathematics. You're usually just counting things. And if you're not just counting things, you're counting and normalizing things um, or maybe counting things a little bit cleverly. Um, the second is really the technical and engineering ability to take data, make it useful, and then also perhaps the ability to architect systems around that data. Um, and then the third piece is the ability to communicate it. Mm. Um, and that may be by talking about it, by visualizing it, or, um, but generally by making it useful to somebody else who is not involved in the work to analyze it. Okay. And so you, you've, you've, you're doing this now. Uh, for Excel, is yes. that correct? And previously for Bitly, or currently for Bitly, but not as, as full-time. Right. I'm now an advisor at Bitly. I was the chief scientist at Bitly for about four years. Um, it's the best job I ever had. It's uh, super fun. Lots of great hard problems and wonderful people. Um, and now I'm working with Excel, um, helping their portfolio companies with a wide variety of data problems. So that if they have data problems, they say, oh, we know Hillary, you should go talk to her and she'll point you in the right direction kind of thing? Yes, it's basically an advanced form of therapy. <laughs> it's whiteboarding out infrastructure and saying it's going to be okay. Uh-huh. We will figure this out. Do you ask people about their childhood data problems? <laughs> I should. I should start. So I, I, I wouldn't have, have thought of Bitly as a place that has a ton of interesting data work in it. Like, what were you, what were you doing there? So Bitly is one of those wonderful things where uh, when n equals one, it's an entirely uninteresting, you know, one URL, one click, who cares? But Bitly has somehow managed to get to the scale of the social web. um, And that makes it incredibly interesting. So somewhere around 30% of all links on Twitter are Bitly powered. Mm. Um, Not all bit.ly, but Bitly powers um, somewhere around 30,000 different short link domains. Um, and Serious? it's not 30,000. Yeah. Wow. Uh, I had no idea. Yeah. There's even a couple emoji domains in there. Oh um, my God. yeah. Uh, and when you see things like nyti.ms, which the New York times uses to share across social media, that's all powered through bit.ly. Oh. Um, and I'll, I'll give you a little bit.ly trick. If you put a plus sign at the end of any bit.ly powered link, you can see the stats page for that link. Hmm. Um, all that data is available through the API as well, but the plus is a trick that anyone can use, whether they're a programmer or not. Interesting. I didn't um, realize that was all public. Yeah, it's um, it's been part of the Bitly ethos from the beginning, is that uh, Bitly collects this data but makes it available. And then the goal was really to make the data useful um, through product. And so 
when you're looking at human communication, actually at the scale of human communication, there are so many interesting problems and products you can start to think about. Can you give me uh, some more of that? Like what were you working on specifically? Or can you not talk about it? Oh man, no. Uh, I'm, we worked on so many different things. We built a search engine. Um, you can play with it at rt.ly. We call it real time. It was an experiment by my team, Bitly Labs. Um, and what this is, is a real-time search engine where you can do a keyword search um, just like normal. You can search for ThoughtBot and see any content that's currently popular on the social web containing that keyword. But you can also do a much broader search. So you can say, like, show me stories about food, the topic, being clicked statistically disproportionately in Brooklyn, New York. And if you know much about Brooklyn, you know, people in Brooklyn care a lot about food. That's a great way to find uh, the news that's relevant in that geography uh, to that population. And you can also just go load the homepage of rt.ly and it'll show you the stories that are receiving the disproportionate amount of traffic from all over the world. Hmm. Interesting. So there's, there's a, big, a big geographical component on this as well. Oh, yeah. Uh, one of my favorite demos is to actually search for the term pizza uh -huh. and the way people are consuming text about pizza in New York, which is where I'm from. Yeah, uh, It's always things like cheap cheese, Greenwich Village, um, 99 cent. Uh, and then you look at how people read about pizza in San Francisco and it's like artichoke, olive, stone, Wolfgang Puck. And then you look at how they read about pizza in Rome and it's cheeses and prosciutto and whatnot. Huh. Um, and you can really see the regional difference in opinion on something as basic as pizza. Mm -hmm. And this, of course, is reflected as well on more serious news topics. Sure. Absolutely. So you said it was a, a good time over at Bitly. So you must have enjoyed oh, yeah. playing with all this giant data. Great. I, one of the things that I, I noticed from your blog is that you uh, put together a collection of data sets. Yes. Uh, freely released data sets. So you must have been sort of in heaven as someone that has the ability to go through these things as kind of a superpower as long as you've got good data to play with. Well, absolutely. And I put together the Bitly bundle of data sets because I heard from so many people, you know, I'd love to do data science. There's just no data. Mm. And that is bullshit. Um, there's, <laughs> it is not trivial to find interesting data, but there's plenty of it out there. And you can also scrape and gather your own as well. Um, and so I have this bundle there. So whenever I hear that from someone, I can say, no, you can start right here. Here are 40 cool things you can investigate. I, I'm going to throw this out there just in case you ever happen to run into it. I would love a data set um, of elevator usage because I've been dying to write like a better elevator algorithm. <laughs> Man, you and every other nerd that has ever spent any time in front of an elevator. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I th so there seems to have been some progress in this space with these elevators where you punch in the floor you're going to before you get in the elevator. Like that makes like lets you do a... Have you, have you seen these? I have. I've seen them done very well. Mm -hmm. um, like at the New York Times building in New York, um, they have that system and it's incredibly effective. I've also seen it done very poorly in a hotel I visited for a conference, which had only two elevators serving 30 floors. Wow. Uh, and people waited a very long time. It's pretty awful. Mm -hmm. In the classic um, surprising results category, um, I was read the story about people people are at the hotel and they're complaining about the elevator wait times and um, complaints are nonstop and they try all these al algorithm tricks and they get a little bit better, but no one's happy. And so they finally install mirrors by the elevator so people can sort of preen themselves <laughs> while they're waiting. And that's just distracting enough that the complaints go away. 
I love that story. I actually heard a similar one about airports where, um, you know, the biggest complaint in this one airport was that it took too long to get the luggage uh, off the baggage carousel. Um, so they realized that uh, actually when you come off the plane, it was a very short walk to the baggage claim. Mm-hmm. So instead they built a path all the way out and around the entire airport. So it took 10 minutes to get back to baggage claim and your bags would be coming off just as you arrived. And uh, that solved the problem. The complaints went away. Awesome. Yeah. It's all psychology when you come down to it. Yeah, right. So data science is something like that. I, I feel like I haven't run into this um, in a lot of smaller businesses. Um, and is, is, there, is there some low-hanging fruit that most companies could be using some of this, these tools for? Are there common things like, you know, there's an, there are fairly easy wins to pick up here? Or is this the kind of thing that's mostly relevant when you have, you know, a ton of data that you want to go through? So actually, this idea that you need a ton of data or a big data um, to do anything meaningful mm-hmm. is, I don't know where that came from. It's actually not a very robust idea. And some of the best data science work has actually been done on fairly small data sets. Um, my favorite example of that is the OkCupid blog. Which, if you have not seen it, you must. Oh, yeah, it's fabulous. Logs.okcupid.com. Um, and they come up with these incredibly compelling stories about human sexuality from what is, in volume, actually a fairly small data set, you know, generally orders of magnitude smaller than what we would call big data. So that said, there's generally a lot of low-hanging fruit for companies that are willing to become more data-minded. And there are tasks that have existed for a long time in most companies that are now being rebranded as data science. And some of that is sort of the business analytics. Um, It's become very fashionable at startups to have a dashboard of both business and operations up on the wall when you come in. So you can see, you know, new account signups, you can see revenue, you can see, okay, our servers are actually up and running all in one dashboard. Mm -hmm. Um, That's all really, you know, under the broad umbrella of data science. Okay, you guys are taking dashboards, huh? Yeah, why not? It's a big umbrella. They're, they're pretty. <laughs> dashboards are great. So, um, so I've had this idea that I know I realize is not my original idea, but something that, that I've, I've been wanting to um, apply some at least statistics to our business, which is so we run a subscription service, and we have various theories in house about why people stay subscribed and why they leave, um, but we have not thrown any stats at this. Um, and so conceivably we could come up with, we could produce our own data set, which, and and look at everything and just do a sort of regression and say, which of these variables that we think are important actually seems to influence the result the most. Are are people doing this in a widespread way? Is that like, is this the oldest idea ever? (laughs) People have been doing this for a long time, but, um, it's generally not very sophisticated, um. And it also, one of the things I encounter a lot is people who worry that data will somehow replace their decision-making process or data will replace marketing, Mm -hmm. uh, which is also bullshit. Um, (laughs) As you said, you have to know what factors you even want to try to measure to get uh, some data about whether that um, is helpful for your business or not. Uh, But it is surprising. I'm sure you look at your analytics. You must look at, you know, how many subscriptions you have, what the recurring revenue is. Do you have a value for the lifetime uh, expected value of each user? Mm -hmm. Um, That means you have a maximum bar for how much you can spend to acquire a new user. 
Um, but there is still this um, this art to, you know, figuring out who the people are who love you versus the people who are just too lazy to unsubscribe <laughs> and then trying to find more people like those people. How do you get started with this stuff? So if, if we're doing, you know, people that aren't, aren't doing very much of it, that want to learn just enough to get dangerous. <laughs> you know, most people already know Excel. And when you're working with data sets that are not particularly large, Excel is your best friend. Okay. Um, because it lets you very easily get visualizations that will help you explore your data set. You can sort things, you can count things. Um, there's actually a lot of power there. Hmm. Uh, when you get tired of Excel, uh, my favorite tool set is the IPython notebook, which is an open source uh, version of the interactive Python interpreter. It runs in your browser window. You can plot things in line. So you can actually dynamically do histograms, look at distributions. You can make those graphs. Um, write code around that data and get a better sense of what's going on. And then you can share that notebook with other people so they can also follow your reasoning. Uh, and it's a very useful and extremely powerful tool. Mm. Do you dig in with that kind of stuff a lot day to day? Or are you mostly telling other people to go do that now? <laughs> so no, I'm actually uh, building a bunch of new stuff as well. And I'm teaching a class at NYU's ITP program on data storytelling, which is all using IPython notebook. Um, so yeah, I'm doing plenty of programming at this point as well. Awesome. You seem insanely happy. How do you feel about you like your life? <laughs> I love what I'm doing. I'm very lucky in that way. Yeah. You just have this happiness coming off you. And I also watched a couple of your talks and it seems to it seems to be a theme, not just today. I'm a data optimist and a technology optimist in that I really do believe that uh, having the ability to build things with technology is a superpower. Mm. Um, in that it lets us as human beings affect the world in a way that we are not naturally equipped to affect it. And with access to the internet, like I have actually touched code that hundreds of millions and perhaps a billion people have used. And that's a really powerful thing to be able to say. Absolutely. So you are involved in a lot of sort of uh, New York-based projects or organizations. So you've got uh, Hack NY which is sort of breeding the next generation of New York hackers. I think it's absolutely like your tagline. How's that going? Uh, Hack and Why is great. Um, it's fairly self-sustaining. And uh, I think it's made a, a very big contribution to the New York ecosystem. It's something I'm very proud of. Um, so Hack and Why sits in the middle between the academic institutions and the startups and helps funnel talented students into New York's more creative technical economy. And my co-founder at HackNY, Chris Wiggins, who's a professor at Columbia, uh, likes to say the tagline is to save kids from the street, but he means Wall Street. <laughs> uh, and that comes from the fact that a few years ago, when you did a technical degree in New York or the New York area, the only career paths ahead of you were finance or management consulting, or perhaps going to graduate school. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, maybe if you wanted to work at a startup, you went to California um, but how can I raise the visibility of New York startup community, made it a viable, high prestige career option for young engineers. Um, and also it's just a ton of fun. Um, there's something really great about, you know, being around a group of 20, 21 year olds who are figuring out the impact they want to have on the world and doing it in a really creative, fun way. Yeah. And it's uh, I like what you said. It's sort of it's you're bridging in an important gap. There's like this difficult jump that you make from like having not very much experience to actually getting to being a useful uh useful fully formed human with you know uh history and knowledge and wisdom well that 
Absolutely. So the goal of Hack and Why is that when you come out of the program, you are hireable as an engineer or designer um, at a startup. Also, Hack and Why will recruit in the fall for internships in the spring and guarantees on both sides. So students are guaranteed a great experience. They don't know where they're going to be working yet, but they're guaranteed a high quality company and companies are guaranteed a high quality intern. And so by by sitting in the middle like that, the organization actually um, allows for risk on both sides to be diminished. Yeah, that's really cool. I never thought of an intermediary sitting right there, actually. Yeah, I, I really think about it as a piece of infrastructure that the city was missing. You know, there's energy on one side and energy on the other, and this connects it together. Huh, that's so cool. It's it, And it's, it's awesome that you guys are working in that particular area. So we, we teach... Um, a lot of sort of beginner and sort of low and intermediate-ish Rails developers. And it's, it's, there's this phenomenon going on, which I'm noticing, which is there's massive d- demand for experienced Rails developers. And people are seeing this and trying to get into Rails as a field. And so there's like huge demand at, at the experienced end and then a ton of demand at the, very, at the basic end to become more experienced and to become intermediates and, and hireable. And there's this sort of chasm in the middle, which is like really tough to get over. That's true. We see the same thing in data science right now. Actually, there are lots of junior people in the market and very few people with years of experience. And it's it's tough because you, I mean, we, as an industry, wanna you actually want to get that demand filled because if you if you can't fill it, then eventually the demand will have to go somewhere else. True enough. So, in terms of other New York projects, we actually just ran a conference called Data Gotham. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask you about week. that. Uh, Well, it brought together um, everyone in the New York community who is doing something interesting with data. So we had people from finance, from healthcare, lots of startups, lots of big companies, infrastructure companies, consumer products, um, just getting people to tell the stories of their work with data. Mm -hmm. Um, And I found it really inspiring. Um, Both the stories people are telling, there are so many interesting things happening now. And these are things like um, a group at CUNY Staten Island that predicted the impact of Hurricane Sandy in a paper they published weeks before the actual storm happened. Wow. Um, To a designer who made his girlfriend's cancer diagnosis understandable with his own design skill. Um, To people who are doing things like, uh, you know, running nanosecond financial transactions uh, to more consumer web stuff. I mean, it's really a wide wide variety of cool stuff yeah it sounds like it and when your topic is something like data it's like there's going to be a lot of applications of this right and when the name is data gotham we got all the batman fans also oh sure so they think they're there for like a comic convention <laughs> exactly surprise data time mm-hmm. are there typical tasks for someone that is a data scientist at, at most companies or are they all, are these are all sort of bespoke roles or there are common things that show up again and again There are a couple of common areas, and actually Harlan Harris in the DC data science community did a really comprehensive survey that actually breaks down um, what these roles tend to look like. But briefly, um, there's business analytics, that is counting historical data so we can make better business decisions. Um, There's algorithm development that is working on product-facing features that are built around the data, like recommender systems. Um, there's infrastructure deployment that is, you know, it's your job to build the Hadoop cluster, make sure the data gets in and data is getting crunched. And then there's, you know, the management leadership um, side of it as well. Yeah. What's your, do you have a favorite in there? 
Oh man. Um, you know, I, I've done my share of all of them and they're all fun if you have the right goal in mind. Uh, though I'd say that, uh, that algorithm design and infrastructure are probably my favorites. What makes those appealing? Well, infrastructure is challenging because you're essentially engineering a system uh, where the very nature of the design of the system is dictated by the data that will at some point flow through it. Um, and so it's a good, hard problem Yeah. Um, and requires a bit of a different mindset than typical software engineering. Um, and it's something that I was very fortunate to work with brilliant infrastructure engineers at Bitly and get to learn quite a lot from them. Um, but it's uh, that's a lot of fun. And then um, algorithm design is usually where the data scientist actually gets to touch the product uh, and gets to actually see and watch human beings interacting with something generated uh, from the data that they've been gathering. And you're usually designing an algorithm to make someone's experience better. Um, so you're trying to, you, know, you might also be trying to make more money, um, but you're Probably. trying to inform people, uh, help them find a product they're looking for, uh, work on search ranking, which means getting the right information to the right person at the right moment. Um, and there's something really fun when you build something and people actually use it. And it seems like these are like making, in a way, they're making the world a little bit better. Like you're sort of cutting through some noise or you're making good recommendations for people. You're sort of like smoothing down these inefficiencies. I hope so. So you're also a member of uh, NYC Resistor. Yes. Which is a hacker collective. <laughs> that's a, a fancy term for it. That's what's on the about page. <laughs> um, can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. NYC Resistor is a great space. Uh, most of us who live in New York City cannot afford a garage or a workshop. And so we have a, a space that a bunch of people rent together. It is full of power tools not so power tools, soldering irons. Um, there are a few big toys like a laser cutter. There's a robot arm, a couple of other robots there at the moment. Um, and it, it's really the space that, um, that brings the right people together. So the members of Resistor are a mix of technologists, artists, um, people doing startups sometimes, people building open source hardware, um, people writing code, people knitting, um, it's a really great community that is very open, inclusive, accepting, and awesome in the sense that you might decide that, say, like I did last December, I wanted to make a coffee table that had a projector integrated it to do ambient data visualization in my living room. I had never made a table before in my life, but there was a member there who could show me how to make the right kind of joints, and in a week I had built a table not because I'm a particularly talented carpenter, but because I had access to people who were willing to help me with that process. Uh, it's a great place. And so did you get the projector in there too? Uh, yeah, it's a Pico projector. Um, Pico projectors have come down in price and are uh, amazingly fun to play with right now. For a couple hundred dollars, you can have one. And it, uh, it does a few cool things. My newest goal for it is to actually make Pac-Man on the table and then to use my mobile phone to run the controller but I don't really know how to do that yet. Mm -hmm. I will try to figure it out. Yeah, well, that's perfect. If you don't know, it's a fun project. Yes. So I, um, poking around your online profile and whatnot, it seems like you are actually interviewed fairly often. Are there questions that you don't get asked that you think are interesting to talk about? That is a very good question. 
Most people, um, most people who interview have their own static set of questions they like to know. You know, what is your background? What are you interested in? Mm-hmm. The questions that people don't ask me, actually, the thing I'd like to talk about that no one's ever asked me about is what am I excited about um, technology-wise that has nothing to do with them, um, with my career making money. Um, and in general, it is uh, at the moment, I'm very excited about how cheap it is to prototype new hardware devices. Yeah. And I expect that in the same way that Rails made web development accessible to people um, with only you know a few months to a year of training, uh, we're about to see the same thing happen in hardware. Right. Does, is there an overlap in this with like 3D printing? Oh, yeah. 3D printing is great. Yeah. But you're, ta- you're talking about like even like lower hardware, like electronics type things? Yeah. So I have a, a project I'm trying to put together right now, which is uh, I went to Disney World and gave a talk. And I was there walking around Disney World. And there are all these kids cosplaying um, as pirates and princesses and fairies. And um, they're all waving little plastic sticks in various forms around. Like maybe it's a pirate sword or a fairy wand or a princess wand. But they're all dumb. And there is no excuse, <laughs> not the children, the sticks. <laughs> yes. Um, there's no excuse for these kids to be playing with magic wands that don't actually do magic when the hardware is so cheap. So I have one I'm putting together with a couple of friends at Resistor where it has an accelerometer in it. It has a microphone in it. It's got some LEDs. And it has, I've designed a little gestural programming language so that as kids describe what they want to happen in the world around them, they're actually writing a simple program. What? The ultimate goal is to make, um, you know, programming accessible to little kids by making being a princess fairy way more awesome. Nice. And to do it in an open source hardware way. Yeah. And so what's gotten easier about the hardware com- piece? Like, why is that easier today than it was 10 years ago? Uh, There are companies like Adafruit, which is another New York company, that are producing kits and chips that combine multiple capabilities in one chip uh, in a way that is actually affordable and accessible. They're also writing good documentation. Mm. And, you know, if you've ever sat and actually watched somebody program for a while, you will realize how much time we really spend looking at documentation. Uh, The documentation is key to the success of any given technology. And they basically solved that problem. Um, and the cost has come down. That'll do it. Yeah. Do you have any, any other uh, pro, uh, whimsical projects that you never get to talk about? <laughs> well, I just gave a talk about finding cheeseburgers. In oh, yeah. New York yeah. That was uh, definitely a whimsical project, um, but a lot of fun. Yeah. Do you want to give like a quick summary of that one? Yeah, so that project happened because I was walking through the West Village and uh, I saw this restaurant and it was brand new and I was entirely uninterested in going into it because it looked like the median restaurant. Um, It served only things that I knew were served, you know, in other restaurants in the neighborhood. And then I started questioning myself and saying, is that true or is this just my bias? And I decided to find out. So I went and crawled all the menu data for non-fast food restaurants in Manhattan um, and parsed it out and, uh, you know, got it in a form where I could actually analyze it. 
Um, and then I started asking other questions, like, could I make a heat map of all the Chinese restaurants in Manhattan? And I did, and I found Chinatown. And that was a very exciting moment, because step one is always finding the things you you know are already there. Right. Um, and then step two is, is uh, you know, looking for the things you didn't necessarily know were there. Um, and I love cheeseburgers so much that it's become sort of a joke. And so I thought, okay, can I write a script that will tell me from any point in New York City where I should go to get the best cheeseburger? So it calls out to the forecast.io API and gets the weather to figure out how far the radius of search should be. Um, it looks at the prices on the menu to make sure that it's not very cheap, but also not very expensive. So nicely, moderately priced burger. Mm -hmm. And then looks at Foursquare tips that mention the burger. Uh, and gives you a ranked list of venues where you can find a cheeseburger from wherever you are. <laughs> that's beautiful. And I'm I'm long overdue to write a web app version of it. Oh um, yeah, that's what I was going to ask is if there's an API for this. Uh, well, there is a Python script, but okay. um, but I do have to make it web accessible. Yeah, let others benefit from your work. <laughs> Indeed, if they love cheeseburgers as much as I do. You're probably going to see a lot of like SaaS apps integrating this if you just <laughs> have an API they could use. Yeah, why not? Sure. Uh, well, Hillary, it's been awesome talking to you. I appreciate you uh, chatting with me today. No, it's been great to chat with you too. Yeah. Um, so if people wanted to get in touch with you, what are good ways to do that? Uh, the best way is to send me email. And my email address is me at hillarymason.com. Mm -hmm. um, or there's a little form on my website that goes to my email account as well. And I'm hmason on Twitter. Cool. Are you still running those funky uh, email scripts that I saw you talk about? Oh, yes. Nice. <laughs> So we'll, we'll, you'll probably read the email as long as it looks kind of important. Uh, I will definitely read it. It's just prioritized based on where it comes from. Gotcha. So I'll mix in like fancy words if I want your attention. <laughs> Interesting words. Interesting if you mentioned cheeseburgers, it'll go to the top of the queue. Perfect. It's good to know. That's the secret. Okay, well, um, if you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, you can go to thoughtbot.com slash giantrobots slash 67. Today's podcast was recorded and edited by Mike Manor and produced by Chad Pytel. Thanks for listening.